Authors Over 50, Writing in Life's Sweetest Third. Authors Over 50's weekly podcast celebrates writers and their journeys to publication. Writing after 50 is a whole story on its own, so let's skip to Life's Sweetest Third and talk with authors about their journey from pen to publish. Welcome, I'm Julia Daly, your host, and I invite you to listen to interviews with writers who've achieved their goal of publishing a book just later in life. We've seen award lists for under 30 or under 40, but I've yet to see lists for those who've achieved a significant milestone of their own, launching a new career and publishing their first book after the age of 50. We will hear about these authors' inspirations, struggles, strategies, and the smell of that first book. These writers' journeys inspire me because I'm one of them. My guest today has played many roles since she began her career as a singer, actress, and musical theater, award-winning author, mystical poet, professional development trainer, life coach, and inspirational speaker. If you ask, she'll tell you that her storytelling comes from a love of Ireland, its people, language, land, and culture that continues to inspire characters and stories in thrilling novels that follow the trials and triumphs of twin flames who sometimes struggle and often succeed in unlocking love's mystery. Welcome to Authors Over 50, Cheryl Lafferty Eckel. Thank you so much, Julia. It's really a pleasure to be here with you. Our opening question on Authors Over 50 is always, what took you so long to write your first book? Well, I've thought about that, and I actually didn't think I could. In a way, it never occurred to me. Um, I've always been a lover of the word. I mean, I have a theater background, and I was an English minor. Um, and I spent about 25 years in executive support, where I did a lot of writing for business. In fact, I realized I tried to turn every job I had into a writing job. But it never occurred to me to write a book until my husband, Stephen, uh, was diagnosed with terminal colon cancer. And um, he had been fighting cancer for a couple of years, but we thought he was beating it. And then in 2006, it came back with a vengeance. And I had already been journaling um, because I was traveling quite a bit and he was still working. And um, I'd been recording my thoughts. But the day after we found out that he wasn't going to make it, I actually had a vision that Stephen was to go on. I mean, he was the love of my life. And I was to stay and tell our story. And so I started writing in my journal everything that happened as it happened. And that eventually um, became A Beautiful Death, my first book. Stephen lived another two and a half years. And so when he finally passed, I had a whole stack of journals. And uh, that I started putting them together almost immediately. And I was very fortunate to be led to a fantastic editor uh, who actually taught me how to write a book. She taught me how to write a memoir that reads like a novel. And that has that, fortunately, that first book did win some awards. Um, so that got me started. 
And after that, the books just kept coming. It like, wasn't what I planned, but um, that's been my life ever since. And it's been 14 years. That's quite an inspirational story. And you write in so many different genres, including romance. Tell us more about your prolific path. Well, you know, sort of my my underlying theme, and certainly the way I've always lived my life, is listening to the inner voice, the still small voice. I call it your true self. And I've coined the term wise inner counselor. And so I've always listened and what's been kind of fun is that these different genres have, have come. I started out with nonfiction, with the memoir, and then a couple of other books. And then um, my, my mother passed away at age 94 and a half. And I didn't write anything for 18 months after she died. All I did was travel. And uh, this was in early 2015, I think, a friend said to me, did you know that April is write a poem a day month, which I didn't know. And I thought, well, that sounds like a, a good challenge. I'll, I'll, I'll try it. So I wrote a poem a day through April and May and June. And by the end of June, I realized that I had enough poems for a couple of volumes of poetry, which I published. And then this is this is where the, this is where the really fun thing happened. I got this inspiration to write this book of poems that was a journey through an etheric garden that actually some people see when they have a, an out of body experience or a near death experience. And so my imagination just took off, which I had never really trusted before. It's like, yeah, I can write memos and purchase orders, but you know, not, not fantasy. But this was a total fantasy in this amazing world with gnomes and fairies and water dragons and all kinds of amazing uh, scenes. And that taught me to trust my imagination. And after that, then I thought, oh, you know, I would like to write a novel about twin flames or, you know, soulmates um, of what happens after the wedding. Because Stephen was the, the love of my life. And, you know, that didn't mean we didn't have our challenges. And so I, I started writing a book like that. These two people meet and recognize each other immediately. And then... Um, we really pick up the story about seven years later, they're having problems. And what happens is that the, the story pops into then past lives in ancient Ireland, in Atlantis, in Greece, and all these amazing scenes just started coming to me. So that became The Weaving, a novel of twin flames through time. And a couple of years and a couple of more books of poetry after that, some characters that we had met in the weaving, they, they, it was like the, these people were living in me. Right. And they started knocking on the door saying, we need our own books. So I ended up with the trilogy of, of novels, which is, it's really kind of my happy place. I mean, I'm working on nonfiction now, which is important. And it has a lot more to do with this wise inner counselor. I have a whole series of books on that, but anyway, I'm kind of looking forward to getting back to fiction. Well, you're so creative and thinking you really are a wise person if you do listen to an inner 
counselor because I don't think I ever had one of those in my life. I, I needed one of those, but I don't think I had one or I didn't listen to her. Well, you know, we're not taught to. That's the problem is very young children. You know, a lot of children see fairies and elementals and they'll talk about their imaginary friends, but um, that makes parents nervous. And so I think very early children are kind of talked out of a lot of their inner wisdom and it's not really honored. And so we forget. And if we have those inner inspirations, if we're not encouraged early on to listen, we don't, we override it because that, that wise inner counselor is actually always talking to us. It's the voice of love in our hearts, but we've not been taught to listen. So we don't, but that's, I think probably that's my big mission with any of my work is even in the novels. Um, a lot of what the the characters are doing when they get into trouble is when they don't listen. And when things happen well for them, it's because they did. Um, so that's sort of the, the overriding theme of each of these books that I'm just kind of covering in different ways. However, they come to me because I listen. <laughs> well, once you wrote your first book, how did you proceed? Did you search for an agent, decide to use a hybrid, a small press, or did you self-publish? I self-published and I have, um, I actually have a background in publishing. I've done several years of book sales and I worked for a small press and actually some of my very best friends in the world and the people that are part of my team now um, were all part of that small press. So um, a couple of my friends actually had their own business of um, publishing, self-publishing coaches. So I worked with them initially and that's how I got my fabulous editor. So I guess you would call them, them a little bit of a hybrid because they had their own network of, of editors and cover designers and you know people that did all the, the back end, all the production. So I worked with them initially and um, printed a lot of books. Cause I mean, this was years before really self-publishing really took off. So we printed a lot of copies. And of course, I ended up with a couple of thousand books in my basement, um, which in this case was not a bad thing because um, A Beautiful Death, Keeping the Promise of Love is actually a hospice book. Um, we had Denver Hospice for Stephen and a couple of years after he was gone, I went to work for their educational arm doing workshops on end of life issues and so I had contact with the number of hospices. And so I ended up giving away most of those books because what I've said is that's the book to read before you need it. So it was self-publishing and, and, and we got in all of the main channels. But um, after that, uh, I kind of switched gears and went with Ingram Spark, um, which was really the earliest, I think, self-publishing and they I continue to work with them because they've they've got the full platform and Ingram is still the biggest worldwide distributor so um you know I've I've got the the, the biggest dis distribution I can get they don't do marketing which I wish they did but um as far as creating and being a self-publisher um that's that's the the route that I go still did writing your first book change your process of writing? Uh, 
No, I think it actually solidified it because, uh, which is, is interesting. That's another thing I didn't really expect um, because this book came from my journals. I mean, you know, I had a foot high stack, um, which of course we had to excerpt and add narrative. And, you know, we really had to turn it into something that was readable, not just a whole bunch of journals. But every one of my books has actually started in my journals. Um, even the novels, uh, the the initial stories and kind of, you know, I'll get an idea for a scene and I'll, I'll write it in my journal because I tend to write at night. I'm more of a, a nighttime writer than a daytime writer. So I'll start in my journal, but then uh, when it needs to be transcribed in the computer, then then the story really fleshes out because I can type a whole lot faster than I can write by hand. But everything pretty much starts by hand. There's a there's a connection, I think, and I don't know if everyone feels this or not, but for me, um, writing is so much um, really a part of my spiritual process. It's part of my spiritual life and listening to that voice in the heart, even if it's telling me stories, um, there's there's something about the connection between the hand and the pen and the paper and the heart and the imagination that I don't get initially if I start on the computer. Well, you're one of the first night writers that I've interviewed. So that's really? interesting. Yes. <laughs> Most people start first thing in the morning. Oh, no, I don't. Well, I think it's old theater momentums. You know, it's like I wake up about eight o'clock ready, ready to go. And I have a very busy mind. And during the day, you know, I'm busy doing stuff and taking care of things. And I mean, I'm a one woman show, you know, I run my own business. So I keep thinking, you know, I spent 25 years in executive support and I thought, where's my Cheryl? You know, where's somebody that's going to keep me organized and take care of all of this minutia? But she hasn't shown up yet. So that's me. So that's kind of my day. And so when the night comes and it's, it, there's also something about the twilight time, you know, it's, it's the in-between time. It's almost a different, it's a different way of being. And that's when I've always gotten my, my best inspiration. What do you think is the most challenging part of your artistic process? Oh, golly, not overthinking it and not stressing. You know, I especially finishing a book, finishing a book is really hard <laughs> because, you know, then it's like, hopefully you've, you've got all the, the creative work done and, you know, the nuts and bolts of production, but finishing it and actually the uh, uploading the files and making sure that everything is actually technically technically correct. That's always very challenging for me and very, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty savvy technically, but it's still stressful because, you know, you really want to get it right. Even though we're doing print on demand, every time you have to upload a new file, you still pay for it. You know, it's not thousands of dollars, but if you make a lot of mistakes, it adds up. <laughs> That's so true. And I think when I had multiple editors and we went through all those different drafts, you know, they would ask me to change something different in each one. So I sometimes got my drafts mixed up and thought, did I 
make the changes in this one or the one before. So you must be very efficient in your numbering of your, your drafts. Well, I've learned, I've learned. And, and, you know, I do one thing I would definitely say is, you know, back up, back up, back up, because this current book that I'm working on um, several weeks ago, the file got corrupted and it was corrupted on my desktop. It was corrupted on my laptop. It was corrupted on the backup. And I finally had to go back a couple of versions to an earlier file that wasn't corrupted. And fortunately, I had a PDF that wasn't corrupted of the latest edits. And I was able to turn that into a text file but I had to go through with what was on the screen, what was on the PDF, and go through every single page and update manually. But I saved it. You know, I didn't lose 300 pages, but oh my gosh. Uh, that's that, ter- terrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had a, my computers died a couple of times when I get right to the end. I mean, I've definitely had things happen, but a corrupted file that almost threatened the entire book. Um, that had never happened. And that was, that was scary. Well, what have you found as far as publicity that's worked for you or, or didn't work? Well, I think uh, what hasn't worked is that I've never really been able to put enough attention on marketing. You know, it's like every book I get, um, my friend that helps me with my books. And I was like, okay, now this one, we're really going to push. We're really going to market it. And then here comes the next book. And, you know, I'm, I'm well over 50, <laughs> like 20 years over 50. And so I have the sense that, you know, time is short. We don't know how long we have. I mean, my husband, Stephen died a month shy of his 56th birthday. So, you know, I'm in, I'm in good health and, and, you know, by, by God's grace, we'll keep ticking along here for a while. But I also have a sense that, that the import of my mission is to get these books written. So that, that tends to be, but Facebook has been very good for me and um, social media and interviews like this. Thank you very much. Um, I've also had some real success on LinkedIn, um, especially with my books on grief and loss, because I have three of those. And there's a big um, death doula, end of life community on LinkedIn that I tapped into years ago. And so that's been a really, really good place. And and also then doing book signings. And uh, I noticed that one of your, your previous authors was talking about doing book signings at Barnes and Noble. And I've been able to do that. I mean, I live in Montana, so our Barnes and Noble stores are few and far between. But we have a really nice store in Bozeman, which is just about 20 miles from me. And the, the uh, buyer there, um, has been very, very complimentary and very supportive of my work. And so I've done probably four or five different book signings there, which has been fantastic because, um, you know, you just meet people that walk in the door. And, um, you know, I love to talk to people. And so that's been probably one of the best things that I've done. And then, you know, people, people talk to people and word of mouth is, is very big. Um, the other thing that I'm getting into is audiobooks, which I haven't pushed a lot, but uh, I've got audiobooks of the first two of the Wise Inner Counselor series 
reflections on being your true self and reflections on doing your great work. So once I get this, this uh, latest book done, I'm going to do two more audiobooks. And I think that's actually going to be a really good thing to push when I have this whole series of four books on the wise inner counselor. Because my understanding is that audiobooks are really the thing now. People want to listen. You know. They're very popular. And I've had both of my books uh, turned into audiobooks because I'm one of those listeners now. I'm not reading hard copies. I listen when I'm on my bike or exercising or when I'm on long trips, I can listen to a full book, you know, and right. on, on the way there and on the way back. And so that's become my way to, to read. Yeah. Well, I think that's true. And especially now that we're, you know, hopefully fingers crossed through the pandemic and people are back at work and they are commuting. And so um, where during the, during, during the lockdowns, people were reading more hard copy books. Now they're back to listening. Well, I'm very impressed that you've had book signings in Barnes and Noble that that's very impressive. They don't just allow anyone to come in there and sign books. So that says a lot for your work. Yeah, well, thank you. They, I mean, they, they have their, their requirements. And one of the things that um, is very beneficial for me that I, I think people should consider, you know, it really, as far as production, it depends on what kind of a team you have. But for example, Ingram Spark does have um, access to editors and designers. You know, I've never used any of their services because I have my own, my own colleagues that I work with. Um, but the fact that my, all of my books are in the Ingram catalog uh, when I was first meeting with the buyer at the Barnes and Noble, um, you know, I, I always carry books with me and she loved the quality of, of my product. And I said, well, you know, they're, they're all in, in the Ingram catalog. And she went right to her computer and found them. And she said, oh, well, I'll order them right now. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, that is something that if you're just going through Amazon and I understand why people do that, um, and as far as sales, online sales, Amazon has a lot to recommend it because of their KDP and, you know, different things that they will really push. They make it, they make it hard to do ads on Amazon if you're not a KDP publisher. Yeah. So there is that consideration. But if you want to get into stores, and especially if you want to actually have Barnes & Noble carrier books, making sure they're in the Ingram catalog um, goes a long way. So, you know, it, that's something to, for, for people to balance of what, what's really the priority for them and, and what's easiest for them to do. You know, I'm, I'm unusually fortunate in the quality of team that I have. So, you know. Well, Cheryl, are there any specific books or seminars or writing retreats or groups that you can share that improved your writing journey? Well, there are, and actually, I'm I'm going to give you a plug for one. Um, I haven't gone to a lot of writing retreats, but um, I have a, a, a wonderful friend. Her name is Libby Wagner, and Libby Wagner is a writing coach, and she runs writing retreats. And she is actually going to be doing a retreat in June. Um, and so, I recommend people go to LibbyWagner.com and check her out. Uh, she, she's brilliant. That's all I can say. And she's wonderful. And she knows writing. She's also a fabulous writer. 
So, um, you know, find, find someone like that, but uh, Libby's, Libby's my go-to gal as far as helping my writing. And she really has helped me a lot. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the passages you brought to share today and then read so that we can hear your tone and voice in your book. So I'm going to read to you from The Weaving, a novel of twin flames through time. And so this is, um, this scene takes place uh, when we're uh, back in Ireland, in ancient Ireland. And the two main characters are Druids. And they have recently gotten married and they're going on a voyage around the the coast of Ireland to go um, visit uh, Alan is the man to visit his mentor, Oingus, who is the master druid. And so this is um, a dream that comes to Alan when they're on the boat. So Alan and Alana had no thought of future trials as they sailed around the coast. At night, they slept peacefully in each other's arms. And to Alan, a vision of long ago came again. Here was a scene he had forgotten in the many years since childhood. In those days, his imagination had wandered to, off, to far off lands and ages past, to strange experiences and recollections of himself in foreign aspects, quite unknown in these times. And yet it was himself in another life that he had seen as a boy. I know this land of plenty, Alan mused as he drifted into the familiar dream. Our kingdom is the envy of the world and the center of its richest culture. So this is what he imagines. The exquisite royal barge glides lazily upon the ribbon of blue water, cleaving vast stretches of desert, its sands shimmering in Egypt's blazing sunlight. The only sound is a rhythmic splash, splash of the oars. The rowers keep an unhurried pace as the barge passes spectacular stone edifices and immense statuary bearing likenesses of the gods and the royal couple who are taking their ease on the barge. Gorgeously clothed are they, arrayed in garments made of finest linen, nearly transparent in their delicacy. Relaxed and laughing, they recline on richly upholstered couches. They turn and gaze across the water at their palace, glittering in the sun and surrounded by massive date palm trees whose fan-like fronds sweep up to a cloudless sky. That's a beautiful scene. This is one of, yeah, this is one of the scenes that actually came to me whole. You know, every once in a while, a whole scene will just land. And this is one of those. I, I saw it. You know, I saw what Alan was seeing and I'm writing. And this is what I'm journaling. I, I'm writing as fast as I can because it's like a movie. And this scene is just unfolding in my mind. So um, that's one of my favorite scenes in the book because it, it was as vivid, vivid as I just read it. How long on average do you publish how long does it take you to publish a book? It kind of depends on, on the book. Um, a Beautiful Death took two years because that was the first one. Um, the second book, uh, A Beautiful Grief, came out of a series of blog articles that I wrote on Psychology Today. And that little book 
I think wrote it, you know, just sort of fell out of the sky. Um, the poetry books came very quickly, you know, because I, that's when I was writing a poem a day. And so um, in some cases, six weeks. In other cases, like the book I'm working on now, um, I really started last July and I was hoping I would have it out by now. And, but it just, it just took a, a major turn of a complete rewrite. So I'm hoping maybe I'll have it out by May, you know, so that's, that's longer than some of them take. Um, I'm finding uh, these, these last books are actually taking longer. Um, they're more challenging. I think they're, they're making me go deeper. Um, the, the Twin Flames trilogy came very quickly. You know, I think that really was about six weeks a book. So it kind of depends on the, the book itself and what it's requiring of me, because every single one of these books, when I'm working on it, is the hardest thing I've ever done. And so it kind of depends on what, you know, what, what level of sacrifice and surrender is involved in writing that book, because um, that's the writer's life for me anyway you know, is that it's, it's not separate. It's not a job. It is my life. And it's, it, it comes from inside out. And so whatever, whatever God actually needs from that inside of me, that's what the book requires. So it, it's, it's an amazing alchemy. It really is. And I can't rush it. That's the thing. Sorry. I can't rush it. I don't get to decide when the book comes out. It's like, no, oh, the book has its own thing, <laughs> you know, just listen. Well, it sounds like you are rushing because you must be staying up all night every night to write a book in six weeks. <laughs> Not always, but towards the end, yeah, yeah. I work late and then five o'clock is like, okay, Cheryl, get up. Here's the next idea. I went, okay, <laughs> okay, here we go. <laughs> what does writing success look like to you? Touching people touching people. And I'll tell you the greatest story. So the book that I published before this one, which came out last year, was uh, kind of the continuation of the memoir. It's called Reflections on Ineffable Love from Loss Through Grief to Joy. And it's really the continuation of the last 14 years since I published the memoir um, and of my ongoing uh walk, I'll say my spiritual walk with Stephen's spirit, because um, we are twin flames and we have that inner connection that um, it's like, you know, he, he actually does live in me. And there's been so much about that. So uh, this was the book that I talked a lot about caregiving and um, how, how you actually, when you listen, there is a path that will unfold that can take you from being cracked open in loss through the grief journey. And when you, when you allow yourself to, to ride that roller coaster, that at the bottom is love and joy. So that was the book. And I was actually doing a signing in, in Barnes and Noble and the friend of a friend came and she had already bought one copy and she bought two more to send to friends. And she said, this book actually cured me of my fear of death. <laughs> I know I did the same thing. She said, I've always been scared to death of death. 
And I read your book and she said, I no longer have that fear. And I thought, okay, if no other person in the world bought that book, it was worth it. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that actually happened a lot with the beautiful death, because like I said, I gave it to hospices and, and funeral homes. I was living in Denver then. So, um, that to me is success. It would be nice if I sold more books, but the point is, who is it for? And are they getting it? You know? Well, you certainly are touching lots of lives and that's such a touchy subject for most of us. You know, death is not something that we really talk about or delve into until we have to. So I can only imagine that your work is reaching a lot of people. Well, it's so important. You know, I think that's probably, um, even though I write in different genres and I'm, I did reach a point when I said, I don't want to be the death and grief lady anymore. But what continues to happen is that um, life sends me people who are dealing with loss. And one of the things that I've been able to do is to help normalize for people what feels so absolutely abnormal, because grief is so primal. And we moderns are not used to that. And especially if we haven't talked about it. And if, for example, the person who was dying didn't want to talk about it, it leaves us with so much incompletion, unfinished business. And so, you know, my, my whole thing is like, we, we need to have these conversations and I hope I can help do that. But even after the fact, here's how you can have the conversation with yourself and with other people and, and by really listening also, I keep coming back to that, to that voice in your heart, there is wisdom there that will carry you through. And, and, you know, I don't like the, the, the term of closure, because that's like, we're just slamming the door on it, not dealing with our grief, but to come to a sense of completion that we have actually integrated into our hearts, the essence of the person, or even the pet that, that we've lost that has broken our hearts, if we can integrate that essence into us, then we're complete. And in a way, I think they are too on the other side. So that's, that's a big part of what life keeps bringing to me. Well, it's a lovely sentiment. Cheryl, as always, our last interview question is our writers over 50 are quite a unique set. Do you have any advice for writers 50 and above? Write, just write. And don't worry about writing a book. That's the best way I know to to absolutely screech yourself to a halt is, uh, and I know because that's what I'm doing on this book right now. It's like I keep screeching myself to a, a halt. No, just write. And I mean, if you are a writer, you know, you've got a book in you and you love words. For me, journaling is is really the best thing. And just write on your journal. Just write what comes to you as it comes. And um, worry about putting it together, finding the order later. Because there, there, there will be an inner organization to it. And you don't have to worry about that right away. So just write. You know, write in your journal and don't worry about what's coming or what needs to come. Just let it come. And uh, before you know it, you'll have a book. That's very wise counsel today from someone who is very sensitive, I think, to the world around her and who offers wonderful advice to listen to our 
wise inner counselor. So we're excited to say, Cheryl, that you're now counted among our authors over 50. Thank you so much, Julia. I'm really grateful. I've really enjoyed the conversation and you are doing great work too. Uh, for our for our particular group, uh, we appreciate your support because we don't always get it. Thank you for joining us today. Please look for Authors Over 50 every Thursday when we will have conversations with accomplished debut novelists over the age of 50. Please subscribe and share with a friend. And check out my own publication journey after 50 at www. Dot Julia Daily, that's D A I L Y, like dailynewspaper.com. Until next time, keep reading and writing. And remember, it's never too late to fulfill a dream in life's sweetest third. <laughs>